The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, And God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for calling us in this morning, for waking us up from our slumber, not only in the physical sense where you woke us from our sleep, but also in the spiritual sense where you have called us in to see who you are, that you are indeed great, that your name is above all other names, that you are the king who sits on high and rules his people 
with truth and justice and love. And we come to you this morning to hear from you. What we need, though we have this inclination inside of us for just these three bullet points that, you know, kind of lay out how we should live now, the implications and, and the, the application of your word, I pray, Father, for something much deeper than that. Pray that you would actually give us a discontentment for that, but you give us a hunger for your gospel. That as we come to your word today, we would come to feast on Christ. And so I ask for help from the Spirit. I pray for, for me this morning as a weak man who is incapable of communicating the glory and grandeur of our God. I pray that you would help me through the spirit. I pray you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. I pray that you would use me in whatever small sense it is to help your people worship Jesus more this morning. And I pray for the listeners, Father. Listening is a spiritual endeavor that we need help for, so I pray that you would unblock our ears and soften our hearts to hear what you have for us that we may delight in Christ and in his glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. We live in a culture that is obsessed with greatness, right? We're obsessed with what is, what is great, what is supreme, what is beautiful, what is glorious, what's important, right? We have Contest TV shows like Top Chef, The Voice, American Ninja Warrior that are all on the hunt for the next greatest whatever, right? And we kind of flock to these people. We see this with athletes, we follow athletes. We love to see athletes who, who transcend to greatness. Everybody wants to be like Mike. We see this with, with our politicians who want to make America great again, right? We see this with business professionals who are trying to get to the next level, with musicians trying to get that platinum record and hang on their wall. People are in the hunt for greatness, and we are kind of following them. But you see, greatness just isn't pursued by those who are in the limelight. Many of us, I would argue that the vast majority of us are also in the hunt for greatness as well. It might look a little bit different than our athletes and our musicians and politicians, but it's still the same. Moms, you, you might see other moms blogging. You see them in their well-dressed kids, got the fancy, nice, combed-over hair and all fresh, their nice, clean house, their posh IKEA life, and you think, that is greatness. That is what I have to aspire to. Small business owners looking to take your business to the next level. Right, the next pay grade, to, to be bigger, to be more successful. And even, it doesn't even have to be like with those people who are kind of in the, in the who are really trying to aim for something great. Even with the normal people, right, normal people like you and me, that employees striving for greatness in the sense that you're trying to prove your boss wrong based upon your last performance review. You're just trying to get a little bit better, a little bit greater, now, I realize that there might be some of us who don't relate to this quite as well. You're, you're pretty content with the way things are. You're not really bought into the hunt for greatness. Now, it might be out of embarrassment, like you've tried, and, and you just feel like you don't quite measure up, or frustration, that even in those failures, you come to the realize, realization that I'm, I'm just an average. I'm, a, I'm, a two, I'm just an average guy. Greatness isn't necessarily for me. 
And we kind of, if we're kind of in that place, it's easy for us to kind of convince ourselves that greatness isn't something that's worth pursuing. That's for those people. But to, to long for greatness isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, we were made for greatness. As our tagline on our Exodus series shows, that we were built for glory. And even more than that, underneath this greatness is this intrinsic desire that we have to feel cherished, to be valued, to be embraced, to be treasured. So we were made for that. We were made for that desire to be met. But there's a a very significant problem that we all face. Most of us are confused about what it means to be great. We think greatness is in what we produce or what we accomplish. Greatness is in the heights that we might reach through our hard work. See, this is at least the mindset of the world. This is what the world is trying to force upon us. If you want to be great, you have to prove it. It's based upon your accomplishments. I know I feel that. Do you feel that? Do you feel that pressure to be great? I don't think I really understood that until I started working in the car industry. I was just um, pretty fresh out of college. And so this is kind of my first, well, when you have a, a degree in music, selling cars is like your first big boy job. So selling cars, and every day we'd start out in the conference room, and in the conference room, there's a whiteboard, and on the whiteboard there are names and numbers. And essentially, the whiteboard, in order of greatness, would the car salesmen be listed. With the guys with the largest number would be at the top, and the guys with the lowest numbers would be at the, at the bottom. And you, every morning you start out, you look at that board, and you're like, i got to get to the top. That's where i got to be. And so there's this hunger, there's this desire. And I can tell you from experience... That being at the bottom of that list is a very crummy feeling, right? You see guys pumping out 20 cars a week and you got four, or 20 cars a month and you got four. It's like, what, what am I doing? It, it gives you this sense of despair. Like, why, why would I even try? Why even, why even go out there and give it my all this time? I'm just going to fail. This mentality of despair, embarrassment, frustration sets in. But the thing is, when you're at the top of the list, you see, you feel like a baller. I'm it. I know how to sell a car. I remember one time I was joking with my buddy. He was towards the bottom of his list, and I was towards the top this time. And I was like, hey, man, I got an hour. You want me to teach you how to sell a car? (laughs) I'm at the top of the list. But even being at the top of the list, this reality, you go home at the end of the day, and this reality sets in. Is being a great car salesman the same as being a great surgeon, being a great police officer, being a great engineer? Do do they even compare? Even if I am at the top of greatness of being a car salesman, what, what does that mean? What difference does it make? Is my perceived greatness really even greatness at all? See, this is the trouble about pursuing greatness. How do we get it? How do we achieve greatness? How do we know that the greatness that we think we have is actually real? And maybe even a better question, how do I keep it? If I, if I am convinced that I'm great, how do I hold on to that? 
Now, I think this passage that we're in today is going to shed some light on what it means to be great, what it means to be glorious, what it means to be cherished and valued and loved. So we're going to see what it means to be great and how someone becomes great. So if you want to open your Bibles, open your, your apps, Bible app, you can go to Version. We have our own live uh, event that goes on through Version. Um, you can follow along with that throughout the week and use the liturgy as sort of a devotional for you and follow along with the service as we go. But we'll be in Exodus chapter 19. But as you're turning there, um, I want to give you a little bit of context for those of you who are just joining us. Because we go, we preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. That's how we do it here at Sacred City Church for the most part. We believe that God is able to communicate to us, even though it's kind of laid out far in advance, that God has a, this ability to communicate to us in a very timely Way And so that's why we go verse by verse. We don't want to miss anything he has to say. So we've been going through Exodus, and what we've seen, the kind of big picture thing here, is that God has delivered his people, who, are, who is Israel, from 400 years of cruel Egyptian slavery. And in delivering them, he has promised to take them to the promised land, the land promised to their forefathers, to Isaac and Jacob and Abraham, a, a land flowing with milk and honey, this great, marvelous lot. Uh, land that they long to be in. But before God takes them to this promised land, he leads them to the wilderness. And it's in this wilderness that God kind of brings forth adversity and struggle. He, He brings forth difficulty, struggle, adversity. And even in that, God is testing his people to see if they will indeed live by faith. That's what God is trying to see if they'll do. And, and Israel is not testing well. They fail. They're angry. They're bitter. They're upset. They're grumbling, quarreling. And at one point, they're ready to kill their fearless leader, Moses. But God continues to meet their needs, even of these ungrateful and bitter people. And what he does, he gives them an abundance of grace. And in this, they're slowly learning, although slowly and painfully, painfully slow learning what it's like to trust God. The reality is, isn't this the way that our lives work? See, to live by faith is a difficult and painfully slow process. It's a struggle for us to grow in our trust in God. I think there's this temptation for us to always think that we should be further along than we are in our walk with Jesus. We should trust God more, right? We have this besetting sin that, man, if... If I really had it together, I would be past this by now. If we're not thinking about it of ourselves, we're thinking about other people in our mission community, right? This guy, he's been in the same place for the last year. He should be past this now. I love, I love this. John Piper was interviewed at one point, and he was asked what troubles his soul the most about the Christian life, and this was his response. What troubles my soul the most about the Christian life is the painfully slow process of sanctification. This process of sanctification, it's it's this process of learning to trust God more and more. So it's a slow grind. And, And this is what God is after from his people. He wants to gain their trust in the truest sense. And he's already given them so many reasons why they should trust him. He's nudging them toward a trust, a a trust, unshakable trust. And so this is what God reminds his people of in verses 1 through 4. So let's take a look. 
On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Their Israel encamped at the mountain. So God, what's going on here? God is bringing Moses and his people back to the place where it all began, here at Mount Sinai. See, back in Exodus chapter 3, God appears to Moses for the very first time in a burning bush. And he says, Moses, you're going you're to go back to Pharaoh and you're going to ask for my people back. And he's going to give them to you. And he made a promise to Moses. He said, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You see, Exodus 3 is foreshadowing what's about to happen in here in, in, verse, or in chapter 19. And it's a day that the Israelites will never forget. But before God unveils what exactly that is, he's going to remind them of what he's already done. Let's keep going in verses 3 and 4. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God... The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did, done, see what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See, God is using a very, I love this, a very creative, very artistic illustration of what he's been doing. He says, I've bore you on eagles' wings. See, when I read this this particular line, I think of this majestic bird soaring over the treetops, right, of grace, of beauty, smooth, with ease, just gliding. Now, when I think like that, I think maybe that might be kind of what your first instinct is in thinking about what it means to be bore on eagle's wings, but when we look at Israel's experience in the wilderness, that has not been the case at all. It has not been this smooth glide, this joyride, if you will. It's been a difficult season of testing and failing and and growing in trust. And so this this illustration of just soaring on the eagle's wings doesn't really make sense to me in my personal experience in my walk with the Lord. And I I would imagine that that if you've been walking with the Lord for for any amount of time, that you can probably attest to this too. The Christian life is anything but just this gentle glide through the air over the tops of the trees. and That's not at all. So to rightly understand this illustration, we need to do a little bit of zoology. When is it that eagles bear something on their backs? When do they put something on their wings? And that's this. When, when an eagle feels like their young are ready to fly away, to leave the nest, what they do is they shake the nest. They get up there and they flap their wings and they shake the nest until the eaglet is forced out of the nest, until they either jump out for themselves or Or they're forced out, right? And for those eaglets that are ready to fly, it's great. It's marvelous. They they spread their wings out and they're ready. They're soaring for the first time through the air. But for those who aren't ready yet, they're still forced out of the nest. And and we see them plummeting toward the ground, which seems to be like a, a, a for sure death situation. And in the moment, the mother swoops down picks up her young. She catches them. But here's the thing. When she catches her young, she doesn't use her talons like she would for prey. She swoops underneath of them so that they would land on the back of her wings. And in that, she lifts them up, either brings them back to the nest or back to another location where they can get another go at it. 
So it's this, this nudge and swoop that we see eagles doing as they bear their young on their wings. See, God has been doing a similar nudge and swoop with the people of Israel. He's been nudging them to live out of faith, to trust him, to spread their wings of faith. But what we see is that the wings of faith are too weak for Israel and they can't soar. So God, he swoops in to save them. Time and time again. Think of it at the Red Sea. When, when Pharaoh's army has them pinned up against the Red Sea, it's God who swoops in and saves them. When, God, when, when they don't have any water or food, God swoops in, provides food, the manna, the, the quail, the water from the rock that was struck. See, God is swooping in to rescue his people. And one of the things that we see, that whether we soar or we plummet, God is bringing us nearer to him. That is his objective in the nudge and the swoop. God is bringing us closer to him. He's saying, remember what I have done to you, what I've done for you. And and in doing those things, I've brought you closer to myself. So whether you've, you've soared with eagles or whether you've been swooped underneath and brought lifted up, I have been bringing you to myself. Verse 5 continues, says, now therefore, he's saying, since I have saved you, since I continue to swoop in and save you. See, whenever you see a therefore in scripture, what it's doing, it's actually pointing backwards first to say, in light of what's already happened, this moving forward will change. See, so because God has saved them, he's going to do something with them. Verse 5 continues. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the peoples answered together, and they said, all that the Lord has done, or all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. See, these four verses right here are what some scholars call the heart of the Old Testament. Now, what might surprise you here at the heart of the Old Testament isn't law. It's not commandments. It's not do this. But it's gospel. It's grace. See, many people think that God And the Old Testament is a different God from the New Testament. The the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and justice and vengeance. He's mean. He's angry. And the God in the New Testament, maybe he softened up a little bit. He's loving. He's compassionate. He's graceful. See, but, but what we see here in this passage, and in the whole Old Testament, in fact, is that God is indeed both of these things simultaneously, that he is a God of grace and a God of truth. And the Exodus story is actually a template for us to see how God's grace works. First, what he does, he works to accomplish salvation for his people. God delivered the people out of Egypt without asking anything of them as a prerequisite, okay? He didn't drop Moses in there and say, hey, Moses, I need you to give them these 10 rules. And if they can handle these 10 rules and they can do it for X amount of time, then I'll come in, I'll pull them out, it'll be good. That's not what God does, because if you were to have done that, the people would still be in slavery. They wouldn't have been able to keep these 10 rules. 
No, rather God gives them grace. He moves toward them. He delivers them first. And now in being delivered, he gives them a way to live. He gives them his commandments. See, God deals graciously with them first and saves them, and then he gives them the law. And you know what the law does? I think our mindsets of the law, as we're kind of working this into uh, the Ten Commandments series, our mindset for the law is what we have to do so God will love us. I think that's one of the natural bents that we have as humans. I see these rules, I've got to follow them, and then I'll get what I want. No, no, no. The law is to show delivered people how to live like they've been delivered. See, if, if this is how you think, if it's this idea that first I have to make myself acceptable or deserving, first I have to follow the rules, then we don't understand grace. We don't understand the glory of the gospel. Because to think this way puts myself at the center. It, it makes me think that I have to do blank, whatever it is, in order to be worthy of God. See, we all have this tendency. What is your blank? What is it that you have to do to feel as if God loves you, as if he cares for you? Is it to be a good student? If you be a good student, then God will love you. To be a good athlete, then God will love you. To be a good parent or a moral person, to make a decent salary or to, to read your Bible even, you gotta do that in order for God to love you. See, to do these things in order to gain God's approval, it's, it's useless because it's an attempt to create our own greatness. See, true greatness isn't in what we accomplish. It's in how God sees us. So how does God see us? Well, we are told this passage that we are God's treasured possession. What does that mean to be a treasured possession? See, as a kid, I had this, maybe some of you guys had something similar to this. I had this little cedar box that I kept on my dresser. And in that little box, I, I kept keepsakes and knickknacks, things that were random. Um, they were valueless objects that I happened to like. Castings from, or casings from my grandfather's 21-gun salute, pewter figurines, random photos, um, little mementos, rocks from family vacations, sand from the beach, just random worthless things. These things had no real value, but I, I still cherish them. I saw some sort of value in them. See, their greatness, their value wasn't in what they were, but what I saw in them, what I ascribed to them, the value that I gave them myself. And because I ascribed value to them, they were valuable to me. They were my treasure. See, this is what it's like to be God's treasure possession. Verse 5 tells us that the whole world is God's, but out of this whole world, he chooses a people. People who seem insignificant, normal, ordinary people, and he ascribes value to them. He takes what's not value and makes it invaluable. He cherishes it. He loves it. He treasures us. And in a real sense, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Because even in, in um, Deuteronomy 7 here, when they're kind of hashing this out again, this is what Moses writes. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Listen, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord had set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, God is saying here, I love you because I love you. It's not based upon merit. It's not based upon you doing or being something. I love you because I have set my love on you. So we see true greatness here. This is what this is. To, to be a treasured possession is what it looks like to, to obtain greatness, to be cherished, to be loved, to be valued. So we see that true greatness is based on God's affection for us, not our achievement. It's God's special love for us that makes us great. It makes us treasured, makes us set apart. Now, this is good news because it means that I can never lose my greatness. See, if my greatness depends upon me, I will fail at some point. I won't hit the standard that I've set out. But if my greatness relies on God's love for me, his steadfast, abundant love, then that greatness is unshaken. We can be secure in that. See, this is the difference between a Christian worldview and every other religion or worldview out there. Every other worldview says, prove yourself first, then God will love you. Work hard, do it better, work longer hours, and then you'll be somebody, then you'll be great. But a Christian worldview flips it. It tells us that we don't have to prove ourselves because God has already set his affections upon us. So this is good news for us, especially for those of us who feel like greatness is out of our reach, that we're just too normal, we're too ordinary, because this tells us that true greatness doesn't rise out of what I'm capable of, of what God is cap- but rather it's what God is capable of doing, specifically what God is capable of loving. Now, I realize there might be some pushback on this, right? Well, Pastor, it seems like our passage is saying, do this, obey God, and then you will be his treasure possession. And I think, I'll give you credit, it is easy to come to that conclusion, right? If we were to just isolate this passage, it would give us this sort of mindset. But, but if you read the story, the Exodus story in its fullness, you'll come to see that God has already treasured these people, regardless of if they obey his voice or not. Back in Exodus 4, when Moses uh, is being sent back to Pharaoh, God says that Israel is his firstborn son. So even before God calls his people out of Egypt, he's looking at Israel as if they are his son, as a father looks at his son with love. He, He cherishes them. He's our treasure, and he looks at them, and not only does he love them, but he has a desire for them to reach their full potential, to thrive, to flourish. You see, so Israel, when we see this, the context, Israel has always been God's treasured possession. This is essentially why God has saved them in the first place. In rescuing his treasured possession, he wants them to live a treasured life through obedience. 
So you see, obedience is, is not a prerequisite to being treasured. Obedience is subsequent to being treasured. So to live in your treasuredness, to live in the identity as a treasured possession means to obey, to listen to God's voice. God not only wants them to know that they're treasured, but he wants them to be a certain kind of people. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to be a holy nation? To be a holy nation means that God's people are to be distinct, to be holy. That's what holy means, to be set apart, to be other. He wants them to to stand out among all the other people in the world. And so by standing out, God can show the rest of the world what he is like through his people. Now, certainly these would be people with high moral standards. The law is going to put a high standard for morals here. But holiness goes far beyond morality. See, what God is calling his people to be as a holy nation is to be people full of truth and grace. People who love justice and who are compassionate. People who are patient and generous and hospitable. See, they are to be a people who shows the world what heaven is like. And on top of that, they're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. Now, the Levitical priesthood is coming, and we kind of get this foreshadowing of that today in verse 24 when Aaron goes up the hill. But God is saying, I want you you to be a, a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? Priests are essentially mediators between God and and the rest of the people. He's like, I want you to be a people who go back and forth on my behalf to communicate and to interact and to bless the people of the world. See, God wants to give his people special access to himself in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. So this is what God is setting out to do. This is what his intentions are for his people. Keep reading in verse 7. Let me find it first. Verse 7, so Moses came, and he called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people back to the Lord. See, Moses goes to the people. God is having this conversation with Moses. Hey, this is what my intentions are for you. I want you, well, first of all, you're my treasure. I value you. I love you. And that's proven in how I've delivered you from Egypt. But I also have this desire for you to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood. Can you go ask the people? Are they into that? Is that something that they're up for? And so Moses goes, he talks to the elders and the people, and they all give a resounding yes. We're in, right? Even before they hear the terms and the conditions of the agreement, before they hear what God is actually going to command them to do, they say, yep, we're in. Pretty amazing. The, the faith of the people here, just this moment, it, there's a lot of terrible moments in Israel's lifetime, okay? But this is, a, this is one of those moments. It's, it's a silver lining here where they've experienced what God has done for them, and they say, we're in for sure, regardless of what it is God asks. Now, they're going to try to renegotiate on that later on, but in this moment, it's, this is a good thing. Keep going. Verse 8 And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, 
I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. This verse right here was water to my thirsty soul today, this week. I'm so thankful for a God who will make concessions for my weak faith. I'm going to let them hear me talk to you so that their faith may be strengthened. It just reminds me of Jesus with Thomas when he's doubting the resurrection of Christ. Jesus said, hey, put your, put your fingers in the holes, my hands and my side. Jesus makes concessions for those who are weak in faith. That is good news. Let's keep reading. Verse, uh, middle of verse 9. So when Moses told the words of the, pe- uh, words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Let's skip down to um, verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and he consecrated the people and they washed their garments and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Okay, we'll come back to that. Okay, we'll come back. We have to come back. In light of what's going on in D.C., and we have to come back, okay? See, God, God's people are already his treasure, but in order for them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, they must be consecrated. He's saying to them, I love you. My love for you will not change. But in order to do the work that I have set out before you, you need to be cleansed because you're dirty. You're sinful. And so to consecrate the people means that that they need to be set apart. They need to be devoted to that which is holy. They need to be made distinct. And so God tells Moses to prepare the people, to set them apart so that they can do what the Lord intends to do with them. And so there's this two-day consecration ceremony. Now, we're not exactly clear on on what exactly went into the consecration. We know a little bit. We see the washing of garments, and we'll get into that. But scholars believe that, though it's not, not even mentioned in this text, that part of the consecration process was that people would have gone and offered sacrifices to God, that they would go, they would take their lamb, And we've seen this with Jethro in the last passage where Jethro responded in faith to God and he made sacrifices and offering to God where they would go and they'd take a lamb and they would confess their sins over the lamb or the goat and then that goat or lamb would be killed in their place. It's this act of purification, of making themselves clean. See, this would also kind of tie into what they're doing with their garments, what they're doing is they're acknowledging their sinfulness, their dirtiness before God, and they're trying to take care of it. So they washed their garments, and certainly their clothes were dirty. They've been walking around in the wilderness, but the true dirtiness lied within their hearts, that they were sinful, grumbling people. So they're addressing their sinfulness and doing these things. 
But what they're also doing is they're devoting themselves entirely to God. This is what that, that, past, that, that line about staying away from women. Don't, do not go away. It's about devoting yourself completely to the Lord. This is a, a comment. This is a direction for married couples. Saying, men, husbands and wives, fast from sexual relationships so that you can devote yourself entirely to the Lord. Right? It's not because women have cooties or it's not because whatever. It's not that. It's so that you may be completely devoted to God when he comes. So as they're consecrated, they're set apart, they're being prepared for the glory spiritually, mentally, relationally, physically. And then on top of that, they're given precautions. Verse 11, in the middle of verse 11. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. So when the trumpet, or when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Not up the mountain, but up to the base of the mountain. See, this is a warning for them that they cannot go up to the mountain. They cannot go up the mountain, nor can they even touch the mountain, because if they do, they'll die. Even on the day that the Lord descends on the mountain, he warns, this, uh, he warns them of this again in verses 21 through 23. Even animals are prohibited from going up this mountain. Well, why is that? It's because God is so holy that his holiness would consume or destroy everything that is unholy, including the people of Israel and their livestock. See, Scripture tells us in several places that God is a consuming fire. His holiness is so intense that that even the dirtiest or, or even the slightly dirtiest of things would be destroyed if entered into his presence. This is why God tells Moses to stand back from the burning bush. And so this holiness is demonstrated here in Mount Sinai. Verse 16. This is, this is nuts, okay? This passage is crazy. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. They knew what was coming. God is coming to town. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. See, we're seeing the supreme attribute of Yahweh. We're seeing the truest sense of God here. That he is holy, completely holy, completely other. There is no category for him. Scripture tells us that he is holy, 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 taking this attribute to the superlative. See, on this side of heaven, we can know that God is holy, but to experience his holiness in its fullness is a completely different experience. And right here, God is pulling back the curtain, in a sense, to show his people 
his holiness, to, to show them his glory. John Piper says that glory, God's glory is his holiness on display. And this truly was a glorious moment. God descends down on the mountain on the third day in a thick smoke. Now the smoke served as a veil. It allowed people to see just enough of what was going on, just to see enough of God's glory to to get an idea of what there is, but it also protected them because if they would have seen it all, they would have been destroyed. So even through his glory, even though his glory and holiness is veiled, God is showing the people who he is, that he is completely other. And this would have been a complete sensory overload. And I think the words on this page, we, we have a tendency to kind of just breeze through them, but to like envision it and to, 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 to imagine what this would have been like is a completely different thing. So the thunder, just imagine. You can feel the thunder in your chest, like, like when you're standing in front of a subwoofer at a concert, right? The thunder is rumbling. You feel it shake your chest. The lightning shoots down from the sky, piercing the thick cloud, Then the trumpet blasts. It's so loud that it's impossible to ignore. They're trembling at this point. And then Moses brings the people to the base of the mountain, and God descends on it in fire. Lightning, thunder, fire, rumbling, terror. And then the cloud gets thicker and thicker as the smoke filled the air. And then to add into that an earthquake where the ground is shaking. And as time progressed, this intensifies. This doesn't die off. We're told the trumpet blast gets louder and louder. This would have been a completely overwhelming encounter. See, this experience itself would have been cause for the Israelites to get themselves a new pair of britches. Right? Something's going down. It's, it's terrifying, but the thing of it is, the most incredible thing, the thing that scares them the most is that when God starts talking to Moses through thunder, this would have been an awe-inspiring moment, moment, right? The people at this point, we're told later on in verse, verse, or chapter 20, they're, they're terrified and they're trembling, and, and, and they ask, well, they start backing away, and they ask Moses, we want you to speak to us, Moses, instead of God, because if he keeps talking to us, then we will surely die. You see, they know, they know that they can't mess around with God. You mess around with God, you're going to get burned. See, at this point, they, they had an idea that God was holy. They, they could probably tell you, yeah, sure, God's holy. Mm-hmm. But at this moment, they experience just a taste of his holiness. And even that is too real for them. They can't handle it. See, this is what happens when sinful men experience the holiness of God. They come undone. See, even with the two days of preparation, the Israelites were completely caught off guard and unable to go up to the mountain for themselves. They're left out. They can't go where the glory is. So God calls Moses up the mountain on their behalf because these people are far too terrified. So God sends Moses back down in verse 24 to remind the people 
to stay back, okay? He, he's sending Moses back down to tell them, hey, guys, it's still not safe for you to come up here. It, he doesn't come uh, with a pep talk or something. It's like, okay, guys, you can move in. It, it's okay now. Coast is clear. No, Moses says, you still can't come up. But this time he brings Aaron up with him. Look at verse 24. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. See, again, the people were left out. They couldn't be in God's presence. They weren't ready for it. See, even their attempt to cleanse themselves was imperfect. Their, their, their attempt at consecration was not holiness producing. In fact, everything that they would try to do to make themselves holy would be insufficient because the, the definition of holy, they're unable to, to live up to that standard. It's like trying to do laundry with Cheeto fingers, right? You have good intentions, but everything you touch will be dirty. And so it is with our attempts at achieving righteousness on our own. We are not sufficient to do so. And so here again, God makes another provision for them. He sends Aaron to go up as their mediator. By having Aaron go up to the top of the mountain with Moses, God was foreshadowing the Levitical priesthood where Aaron would mediate as the high priest and his family would mediate as the priest between God and his people at the tabernacle. So we see a similar structure in the tabernacle as we see at Sinai, where one man goes into the Holy of Holies to meet with God while the other people are out at a distance. See, Aaron could go into the the Holy of Holies, could enter into the glory for the people, but the people still could not go in for themselves. And they are still left out. So then how? See, Israel's experience is different than the church's experience because we have a different mountain. Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24 says this, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, the contrast of these two mountains are absolute. They're absolutely different. One is dark and stormy, while the other is bright and beaming with joy. One is filled with fear and danger, while the other is a place of peace and safety. You see, one mountain is designed to keep people away, but the other is meant to draw people near. See, But what is it that makes the difference? What's the difference maker? It's not that It's not that the difference is God is at one place and not the other. That's not true. He's present at both mountains. The difference is that when we come to Mount Zion, we come through the only mediator who is sufficient to lead God's people into his glory. That man is Jesus. 
See, it's through Jesus that we become cleansed, not according to the work of our own hands, but by his blood that was shed once and for all. And it's by his death and resurrection that we have been delivered from all of the terrors of God's law and given access to the glories of heaven. Philip Hughes, he's a commentator on that passage from Hebrews. He says, such were the terrors of Sinai, the mountain of God's law, where because of their sinfulness, the people were unable to draw near to God's presence. How different are the circumstances of Zion, the mount of God's grace, where, thanks to the perfect law-keeping and the all-sufficient sacrifice of himself offered by the incarnate Son in our stead, we are invited to draw near with boldness into the heavenly holy of holies. See, the two mountains are different. And we have a choice today as to which mountain we would rather meet God on. You come to Sinai, you come to Sinai, you won't enter the glory because you're coming on account of your own righteousness, your own doing. Or you can come to Mount Zion and enter the glory on the basis of Christ's work. And and when you come to Zion, you will come with just as much confidence as we do reverence because God is still holy. God is still holy on Mount Zion just as he's holy on Mount Sinai. But we come with confidence because we come under Christ. Peter ends, writes this, this is not to say that we enter into his intimate presence with casually, casually, without reverence, but it does mean that since the death and resurrection of Christ, we enter to that presence with a degree of joy, thanksgiving, and confidence, which we are wholly lacking in Exodus 19. For we know that we are without sin before God, and we have been reconciled to God through Christ. As Moses consecrated the people in Exodus 19 to prepare their approach to God, we are perfectly consecrated by virtue of our relationship to the risen Christ. As you come to Zion, come in reverence and confidence. We come in confidence because Christ is the one who has achieved holiness for us. He has lived up to the law. He has been pure and perfect where we could not be. And we come in reverence knowing that God is still holy. And as we come to Zion... In reverence and with confidence, we grow in our understanding of just how treasured we are by God. We see that he would give up his only beloved son, the apple of his eye. He would move heaven and earth in order to bring misfits like you and me into his glory. And so, here's your application. This is it. As God's treasured possession live like it (laughs) delight in him who delights in you incline your ear to his voice and take his commands to heart live in the gospel of grace and it's from that place that we're able to function as a royal priesthood and a holy nation within the quad cities within moline and rock island 
Father, we thank you. Thank you for the ability to draw near to you through the perfect mediator, Christ. Father, help us to grow in our trust in him, to see what he has accomplished on us as being completely satisfying of all things and making us holy and making us fit for your glory. And also for us to know that how treasured we are, that you would send your son to die in our place so that we could be yours forever, a a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And so, Father, I ask that you would help us to live like that here. We thank you for all of this in Christ's name. Amen.